0: Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode, an analysis of global productivity. I'm Ainsley Woolridge, market analyst, and with me today are Dr. David Kelly, chief global strategist, and Hannah Anderson, market analyst at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's start out with what is productivity and why is it important?
1: Well, productivity is, people talk about it a lot without necessarily defining it correctly. What we mean by productivity is the output per hour of the average worker. It's a crucial concept for the economy because in order to get living standards to increase over time, we need our workers to be more productive. We need more output for every hour of input. That's what productivity is. And it's pretty crucial, not just to growth in the U.S. living standards, but really growth in living standards around the world.
0: It sounds rather complicated. How do you analyze it?
1: Well, it is complicated, and there are lots of pieces to it. And I think one of the problems in analyzing productivity is just getting your arms around it. So what we try to do in this paper is we look at two things. First of all, we want to look at the U.S. and the rest of the world separately, because the data on productivity and all the factors that drive productivity are actually much better in the U.S. than elsewhere around the world. And then within the US, we want to say, okay, now we're talking about the increase in output per hour of the average worker, but what drives that? Or can you break that down in some way? And we broke it down to three parts, which is really in line with what the Bureau of Labor Statistics does which is we looked at the impact of capital deepening, which is giving workers more tools to work with. If you give workers more tools to work with, they become more productive. We looked at labor composition. Over time, hopefully we get uh, older and wiser and smarter and better educated. And certainly education levels have risen in the United States and around the world over the years. So you've got smarter workers, they could be more productive. And then apart from capital deepening and labor composition, everything else gets put into something called multi-factor productivity, which is the growth of productivity that you see, which is not due to using better educated workers or giving each worker better or more tools to work with. And that third part is multi-factor productivity. So what we did is we looked at those three things in the United States, tried to project those forward. And then we looked at well, how does this all apply around the world?
0: And how does it apply around the world? What's the difference when you analyze U.S. versus global productivity? So for starters, the U.S. has significantly more and better
2: data. Than the rest of the world you have a much longer history and so it gives you more information to work with and then when you look toward the rest of the world especially emerging market economies there are different factors you want to put into play like what is the required level of education is there a mandatory schooling age what's the technological progress and if there's more room to run if you are further away from achieving the same level of technological achievement as we have in the united states then you think that productivity growth might be able to grow faster simply because you have more technology that you can adopt rather easy fashion.
1: Yeah, I think one of the advantages and one of the key reasons people like emerging markets as long-term investment plays is because they can take advantage, they can piggyback off all the productivity improvements that the developed world has already seen and implemented. So it's much easier to play catch-up than to maintain a lead in terms of global productivity.
2: A lot of the hard work has already been done by a lot of other countries in figuring out what actually does drive faster productivity growth.
0: Productivity seems to me to be a bit of an esoteric concept. What's the connection between productivity growth and investing?
1: There are measurement issues, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But productivity is terribly important for both fixed income and for equities. Because if you can get stronger productivity growth, you get more output growth. That means more revenue, and that could push up corporate profits. You can push up corporate profits while minimizing the number of workers you have to pay. So the more productivity you get not only to get more economic growth, but you also tend to get higher margins. So that's all positive. The other thing that's very important is if you can get workers to be more productive, then even if you push up their wages, you're getting more output from them. So the what's called a unit labor cost, like the labor cost of producing a unit of output can actually be held flat or go down. So if you can get more productivity, you can actually hold a lid on inflation and grow profits. And that really is sort of the trick to getting both the stock market and the bond market to rise in the long run. So. A lot of public policy should be and is directed towards how do we improve productivity in the long run? Because if you can improve productivity in the long run, not only do you make a better economy, but it's also very helpful for both the fixed income markets and the equity markets.
2: And the investor perspective, if you're looking to make a decision between countries or markets or regions that you want to allocate your resources, productivity is an important consideration because those with faster productivity growth, as David just talked about, are the ones that are going to be able to achieve those better returns on
0: both fronts. So what's the trend in productivity in the U.S.?
1: Uh, I knew we were going to get downbeat here. Um, It's not good. I mean, productivity growth has been slowing, particularly in this expansion. It has been very slow. But it has ups and downs over the years. It was very strong in the 1950s and 60s, and then it really slumped in the 70s and early 80s, and really throughout the 1980s. Then it picked up again in the late 1990s and into the 2000s, and everybody thought, this is a big productivity revival, and as soon as we were all counting on better growth for the long run, it slumped again. And so it has been very weak in the last few years. And just, I think, understanding not just the trend of productivity, but those swings up and down is really key to forecasting where productivity is going to go from here.
0: So what caused the productivity slowdown that started in the mid-2000s and intensified after the financial crisis?
1: I think part of the problem clearly was the big recession that we had. What happens when you have a recession is businesses really don't want to lay off a whole pile of workers. I know it sometimes it feels like they do, but they really don't. And so what happens is output tends to fall faster than employment. Now, if output's falling faster than employment, productivity growth really gets hurt. What's been more mysterious is why has productivity not done better since then? And it's not just about the business cycle. I think it's actually got to do with something else. If you look back to the 1990s and even the 1980s, we saw a huge technological revolution with the introduction of the personal computer and then moving on to the internet age and a huge amount of technology investment spending. Now, in some ways, some of that was wasteful, but a lot of it was actually helping people be more productive and in a business sense, helping people be more productive. I mean, there are a lot of jobs and business which just don't exist anymore because of the impact of technology. And all of that was sort of pushing up productivity growth into 2000, into the early part of this uh, millennium But since then, we've seen a big fall-off in investment spending. First of all, we had the tech bubble, and that caused investment spending to fall. And then as soon as investment spending was coming back a bit, we had the financial crisis, and investment spending really fell. Now, it's been recovering, but not that fast. And the problem is, if you don't do enough investment spending, then what's called the capital-labor ratio doesn't go up. We just have not been giving workers enough tools. And so when we look at why has productivity slowed down in the last 10 years— the biggest reason, accounting for about 60% of the slowdown, as far as we can tell, is really just a slowdown in investment spending, a slowdown in the growth of capital stock. At least to know that means it could come up with policies to try and impact it. But that's really what a lot of the problem has been, just less capital spending.
2: And the same is true when you look around the world. Maybe different reasons that capital investment is slowing down in other regions, DM, EM, there are a variety of factors. But you see the same trends when you look globally. Capital investment has just bottomed out and intensified and been growing at almost nothing since the financial crisis. And that's taken a big bite out of productivity around the world.
1: I think I'm right in saying that's really got a lot to do with the commodity cycle. Also, a lot of the investment spending that we saw in countries like Brazil and Mexico and Latin America was really focused on extracting commodities. So a lot of that capital spending has come down. And even in China, where it's harder to measure it, clearly it was a buildup of their manufacturing capability. And as they become a bigger and bigger part of the global economy, it's been less important for them to grow their manufacturing sector. And that's a part of the slowdown that we've seen.
2: The commodities super cycle is one of the reasons when you look at trends in emerging market productivity growth, it's turned negative in the past couple of years and only just this past two quarters made it back to zero.
0: Have killer apps like smartphones or other technology boosted productivity?
1: I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, in some ways you think, yes, it has. I'm sitting here at this table having turned off my smartphone and my BlackBerry and my flip phone. I'm one of the last people in the world who <laughs> actually has a flip phone. But, you know, we've got all these devices and it does allow you to do a lot of stuff. The real question for business is, well, when you're on your smartphone, are you actually sending important emails or are you busy playing Candy Crush? It's the latter. That's not really helping anybody in terms of productivity. You may like it. I think that's one of the dilemmas. You can't say the world's not changing. It is changing. Technology is changing our lives just as rapidly today as it has ever done. But what you can say is that if you look at the technologies in the 1980s and the 1990s, this was business technology, business machines. And these business machines did actually noticeably increase the productivity of American business. A lot of the apps that we have right now, even though they do incredible things, I mean, being able to Google the answer to almost anything is an amazing ability. But does it actually, it's not really showing up in measured output in the economy. It's much more what people call a free consumer good. It's something we can do that we couldn't do before, but it's not really being measured in the economy properly. So I do think it's smart new apps are making us smarter and changing, or not necessarily smarter, but changing the world that we live in and maybe making life simpler sometimes. I don't think it's really pushing up productivity.
2: I think with a lot of new innovations like that, it usually takes a while before someone figures out how to make it a productivity-boosting tool. I would agree that we're not necessarily boosting productivity if we're all sitting playing games in our smartphones, but having a smartphone with the capability to process that amount of data that quickly, in such a visually appealing way, someone eventually might find a way to make that productivity-boosting.
1: I mean, there are other technologies, for example, in robotics, where you could certainly see how, I mean, I think scratching the surface of what robotics will do to our lives and due to productivity. And as you have more robots basically doing the jobs of people in the decade ahead, I think that we'll probably see a renewed boost of productivity from that.
0: So it sounds like they either have a lagged impact or there's some sort of measurement error.
1: And I think perhaps both. But the numbers that are actually measured themselves, the growth in nominal GDP coming from the growth in productivity, that is still really important because it's those numbers that in many ways tend to drive financial markets. That's why the measured productivity numbers, even though we know there are a lot of flaws in them, those are still really important for investors.
0: So for the U.S. specifically, what could boost productivity growth in the future?
1: I think more investment spending could do it. The question is, what kind of investment spending? You know, there's a lot of talk about how we need to do more infrastructure spending, and I worry about this because some infrastructure spending, uh, particularly technological infrastructure spending, maybe uh, you know more, uh, better Wi-Fi around the country, that might boost productivity. A lot of infrastructure spending in terms of repairing potholes, building bridges, very important stuff. But does it increase the output per hour of American workers? Probably not. In fact, it may even have the opposite effect. A huge burst of infrastructure spending usually means more traffic jams. I think it differs from type of investment to type of investment. I think really the key here though is as much as possible to encourage the private sector to invest in the way they think will maximize profits. Because if the private sector makes those investments in a profit maximizing way, they tend to, at least you know they're not gonna do it if it doesn't enhance productivity. Whereas a lot of government projects, although they may be very necessary, it's not clear that they will all be directed at increasing the productivity of American workers.
0: So innovations such as self-driving cars, which could increase potential productivity hours but decrease the number of jobs in the economy, how would innovations like self-driving cars impact productivity?
1: The problem is, would it be measured? What's gonna show up in the government statistics? What's gonna show up in the government statistics is there fewer taxi drivers? I don't know if the Uber drivers ever showed up in the government statistics in the first place, but no sooner will they show up then they'll vanish again. You'll see fewer people working, but are we properly measuring the value of these trips in the first place? I think we probably regard the services consumed by somebody driving to work as being a consumer service. So if they're sitting in the backseat, rather than driving the car, although it's a scary prospect. I mean, I drive in Massachusetts, and the thought of nobody being behind the wheel, it's dangerous enough when there is someone behind the wheel. It's just hard for me to conceive of what it'd be like without anybody there. But anyway, the point is, I don't know that the government will measure it properly, even though it's one more thing that is revolutionizing our lives, and will revolutionize our lives in the years ahead.
2: And that goes back to something we were talking about earlier, which is the potential lagged productivity and maybe having a smartphone increasing your consumer value, but it's essentially a free good. Having the ability to do any of these activities we talked about on my smartphone might add enormous value to my life. I might feel more at ease, feel like it's easier for me to keep track of all the things I need to do during the day. I'm more entertained because I have access to it right in the palm of my hand. But that value might just be for me in terms of my own personal well-being. It may not translate into economic value through greater production in my working day.
1: The other thing to point out, is, I mean, think about what self-driving cars could do literally the number of people in a car. The number of people in the car on average around the country would fall because many cars are being driven by, you know, you've got to drive your kid off to hockey practice or whatever. But if the self-driving car is going to take the kid to hockey practice, then you need one less person. Now, if we have a fall in the number of people per car, That could actually change the whole shape of the auto industry. Maybe you need smaller cars. If you need smaller cars, you need to build so many more highways. So there are lots of knock-on effects. And I think the wonderful thing about technological innovation is you never know really what the end result is going to be. There are lots of potential that you can't see at the time. In the long run, I think we will see some benefit from self-driving cars, even as a safe. It's a a little scary right now.
2: And when you look at innovation more broadly, I agree that that is the key component for boosting productivity growth. But in some places around the world, especially outside the U.S., the resources for innovation really aren't there. There are a lot of companies and economies like we mentioned Brazil earlier or other resource-linked economies that are suffering still with the fallout of the collapse in commodities prices. And so if you're worried if prices are ever going to rebound, you're not exactly going to be looking to invest in better technology or you may not have the resources to do it. And also looking more broadly at both emerging market and developed market economies outside the US, a lot of companies in those countries have either very high levels of debt or their financial systems are not in a position to lend to those companies. And so if you have high debt, you're worried about paying it down. If you can't get access to credit, in both of those situations, you're not going to be making investments in innovation, which, as we discussed earlier, growing that capital stock is really the only way to boost productivity growth.
1: Very important point. You you asked me about how do you grow productivity in the U.S., but how you grow productivity in the U.S. and how you grow productivity around the world are actually two different questions, because in a lot of fields, we are the innovators. I mean, that's one of the things I hope the United States will always be, a source of research and development. In a lot of the rest of the world, productivity improvement could easily come from simply adopting the technologies that have already been developed elsewhere. I think when you think about it, spending on innovation, some of it is true frontier-like Research and development, a lot of the productivity enhancement that we could see around the world, a lot of the things that could do to make the world a richer and more efficient place simply come from the effective transmissions of the technologies that we've already learned. And to Hannah's point, one of the big roadblocks is the ability of developing countries to finance the investment spending just to put this new technology in place. Another issue which is very important is trade. I know you probably say something about this, Hannah, but I think that growing global trade is very important to growing global productivity.
2: It is. And trade is really one of the few ways that has been proven for that transmission of new technologies to happen. We talked earlier about how you can essentially break apart productivity into capital deepening, labor composition and multi-factor productivity, which is everything you can't quite define, but is really important for productivity growth. And for a lot of the world, there's a very tight correlation between trade volume, the amount you're trading with other countries, and your multi-factor productivity growth. Especially since 2008, we've seen trade volumes just hit the floor. They've fallen off quite steeply for much of the world. And as a result, you're really not seeing multi-factor productivity growth almost anywhere.
1: So in the US, we need to encourage more investment spending around the world. Not only do we need to Facilitate more investment spending, we need to facilitate more trade.
2: And trade is one of the ways that investment spending happens. If mm-hmm. you're trading more, you have more resources, you're expanding, and that's giving mm-hmm. your company more capital to work with, as well as
0: facilitating cross-border investment, so which could deepen your capital So stock. It's
1: really a virtuous cycle.
0: Could more labor force growth in Europe as a result of refugee movement to the region impact productivity growth there? Possibly, but not to a large degree.
2: European labor markets are still relatively not tight, shall we say? They're improving, certainly, as the European economy as a whole pulls itself out of the doldrums of 2008 and 2012. But as a whole, there's still a lot of room to run for companies to hire more and more people to start working and the unemployment rate to fall a lot further. And so, for the long run, because Europe has a relatively old population, increasing migrant population could boost the number of available workers, but not by much, despite the drastic number of people fleeing to Europe as a part of the whole
0: European labor market, it's still a relatively small proportion. And David, how do you think the global trend toward populism could impact your productivity outlook?
1: Well, I think the movement towards populism, which we've seen in a lot of elections around the world, um, is, if anything, a little bit of a roadblock to productivity growth. There are two things that worry me about it. The first thing is that Populism very often means, well, we're not going to worry too much about the details of how everything adds up, and it's about consuming now rather than later. But really, when you think about it, what we really need from productivity growth is we need more investment spending, and we don't need lower personal taxes. We actually need lower corporate taxes to encourage that investment spending. So it seems to me that the populist movement, which encouraged more consumer spending now rather than investment for the future, could be quite negative, negative. The other thing that I think is definitely negative about it is a certain nativist element to a lot of this, these populist movements. You know, let's look after our own country. Let's erect trade barriers. Let's, uh, uh, you know, have more tariffs. And as Hannah has pointed out, we really need more trade in order to enhance productivity growth around the world. So I hopefully, you know, this is just a trend to bump along the road because in the long run, I think you'll get stronger productivity growth if people are more logical about what grows economies in the long run and are more open to trading around the world and indeed having people move around the world to the best places to work.
0: Looking forward, it sounds like we're hopeful, but that we think in the US productivity growth should remain slow.
1: I think productivity growth will pick up a bit because I think we will see stronger investment spending. I think one of the things we do need to see are lower corporate tax rates in the United States. I think that we have a high corporate tax rate, which is contributing to companies investing overseas rather than here in the United States, a lower corporate tax rate might encourage more domestic investment spending, and that could push productivity up. And I also think as we run out of workers, you know, the other thing that we found is that multifactor productivity tends to go up when labour markets are very tight, because then you have to work people harder. Janice Joplin said that, that freedom is just another word for having nothing left to lose, Well, productivity in many ways is just another word for having no one left to hire. If you can't find anybody else to do the job, you're going to have to get the work out of the people you have working for you. And that can actually increase productivity itself. So I am hopeful that we'll see some bounce of productivity. I think the next five years will be better than the last five years. We're still not achieving what we'd like to achieve. We're still not achieving the kind of productivity gains we'd need in order to get growth back to the GDP growth of 3 to 4% that we saw from the 1950s really all the way up to the mid-2000s.
2: And for the rest of the world, the answer is very... It's very similar to boost productivity growth. You're going to need to reform something. And for countries outside of the U.S., particularly developed markets, a lot of that is going to be reforming the financial system and the way companies have access to credit to get to that tighter labor market, which you're still not seeing in a lot of the rest of the world. For emerging markets, it's going to be structural reforms to facilitate lending growth and ease of doing business, which we have shown is really
0: how you boost that productivity growth. So what does your outlook for U.S. and global productivity translate to for investors?
1: Well, I think it adds to the overall caution, unfortunately, about long-term returns. We are hopeful that we will see some bounce in productivity growth, better than we've seen in the most recent past, but not as strong as it was in the sort of decades leading up to 2005 or 2008. And without that stronger productivity growth, you know, that does chip away at long-term GDP growth. A lack of labor force growth is also going to chip away at long-term GDP growth. So one of the hallmarks of our long-term capital market forecast is that we really do see slower global GDP growth, and that is having an impact on pushing down our equity market returns in the long run and also really what our long-term returns in fixed income are also. So not having productivity growth is really a key reason why we're not quite as optimistic as we'd like to be about long-term investment returns, but it also highlights, from a policy perspective, the importance of adopting policies which really strengthen productivity growth going forward. So much work is done politically on trying to increase demand, getting people to buy more stuff. The biggest problems that face the developed world, and certainly the biggest problems that face the United States, are not a matter of demand, it's a matter of supply. We've got to find a way of supplying more output more productively. Part of it's growing the labor force, but also part of it is enhancing productivity. And I think it's important that policymakers focus on that. But while we wait for policymakers to focus on that, I think investors do need to be a bit cautious about the long term growth outlook and also, therefore, the long term returns from both equities and fixed income.
2: And looking globally, it's important for investors to realize that just because the average productivity growth for all economies as a whole is pretty slow, there are certain companies that are boosting their productivity far and above what the average rate for the world is. And we spoke about some of those innovators who really are making massive strides and really expanding within their firm the productivity of their employees. And so I think for investors, taking the time to figure out who those innovators are is going to be the key going forward when, as David just said, growth globally is going to be pretty slow.
1: And equally, it's not just a matter of companies, also Mm -hmm. countries around the world that are taking steps that are going to enhance the productivity of their economies. I think in a slower growing world, picking out the winning companies and the winning countries is going to be ever more important.
0: Okay, well, thank you, David and Hannah, for a very productive hour. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us today on JPMorgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on
3: iTunes and on our website. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Europe S.A.R.L. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Real Assets Asia Limited. In India, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, India Private Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firm's Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, By J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea, Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001. CTH. By J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited. ABN 55143832080. AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA SIPC and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2016, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.
0: Recorded on December 5th, 2016.